All right, good morning. It's such a beautiful day outside. I praise God for that. Um, I absolutely hate mowing grass. I hate yard work. Um, I don't care if the rows are even in my yard when I mow. My wife cares a little bit more about that. Um, I hate yard work. Um, I like keeping my car clean. I'm pretty particular about that, but the yard, as long as the grass isn't too long, I could care less if it's dead or alive. But I have to praise the Lord because yesterday I had to mow the yard. I've never remember mowing our yard in the first few days of March. But yesterday I had to mow the yard, and I thought it would be a just a burdensome experience, but the beauty of the day made it a great joy to be out there. And so I actually enjoyed mowing my yard yesterday, and I praise God. Now, my wife and daughters were off hiking in a beautiful spot. It used to be me that went hiking. Now, I'm the guy that likes to stay home and mow the yard. So I praise God for that. I praise God that I could be outside, and Josiah helped me pull some weeds yesterday. And then he and I got to take my grandmother on a little date night last night. And we went and ate some fish together last night. So I praise God for that. Um, it was such a glorious day. And today's a beautiful day. And um, uh, only a day like this could God make. So praise God. Um, let's uh, open this morning to the last verse of the Bible. And today we're just going to praise God. It begins with the day, but this message is about praising God, and that's what we're going to do. Last week, we looked at the last verse of the Bible. It's a blessing. It's the last blessing of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We spoke of grace. We spoke of the title Lord. We spoke of the name Jesus. We spoke of His office, Christ. And we spoke of you all, this blessing. And in doing so, I talked about blessings in the Bible. We looked at the first blessing in the Bible, spoken by Melchizedek to Abraham as he came back from rescuing Lot from the kings. And um, we talked about how a blessing is a prayer or a spoken word imploring, imploring good fruit or benefit upon another. The scriptures are full of blessings. We looked at some of those. There's the great blessing that the children of Israel were to pronounce one upon another. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Out of number six, we looked at a blessing. We're told at the end of Luke that as the disciples were gathered with Jesus atop the Mount of Olives, that the Lord blessed them. And while he was blessing them, that he was taken up from them into heaven. Well, Luke in his gospel doesn't record the words of that blessing, but Luke does in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the earth. That was the great blessing of our Lord. We think of it as a commandment and a commission, and indeed it is, but it's also a blessing bestowed upon us. I can't think of a greater privilege amongst men than to preach or declare the Word of God to men, whether that's standing on a pedestrian bridge and shouting 
to the crowds below, good tidings in Kathmandu, or whether it's gathered here before you today. That's a privilege. And that's a blessing. The Great Commission is one of the great blessings of the Bible that Jesus bestowed upon his disciples. But that behooves uh, me to talk just a bit about two other types of blessings we see in the Scriptures. And we see both of these in the Bible's first blessing. Turn to Genesis 14. As we've looked at some of these last or finales in the last few verses of Revelation, it's, we've considered the first and how they are connected because the Bible is the special revelation of God. It's all connected. One author. Many amanuenses, but one author, the Holy Spirit. Genesis 14, we're told, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him. That's Abram. Abram had just returned from rescuing the goods and the kidnapped people of Sodom, including Lot and his family. And the king of Sodom came out, and Melchizedek came out. Abraham was able to do this with just a few hundred uh, men who went with him. And because of that, we're told Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Most High God is the term that God is referred to in another Old Testament book quite a few times. Does anybody know what that is? The Most High? It's the book of Daniel. So a unique title there for God. He is the Most High. He's the God of all gods. All the gods of men are idols, but God created the heavens, David says in in 1 Chronicles 16, as well as the psalmist. But here we have a blessing bestowed upon Abraham because of his rescue of the people of Sodom and his nephew Lot and his returning of the goods that belonged to the people of Sodom. The king of Sodom tried to get Abraham to keep that stuff as a payment. Abraham said, no, I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff because I don't want you claiming that I'm rich because of you. What I have is because God gave it to me. So Abraham even turned down the spoil. He just wanted to make sure that those who helped him were uh, compensated. But this was a blessing, an act of praise or thanks for something pronounced in response, a blessing because, verse 19. A blessing because is what we call a benediction. And so that's a type of blessing we see in the Scriptures. And I want to look at some of the benedictions in the Bible. Verse 20, Melchizedek now turns his attention to God. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, or Abraham, gave him tithes of all. So this is the first instance of tithing. It's a response to a blessing. That's what tithing is. It's a response to God for the blessings he's bestowed upon us. Abraham gave a tenth to the priest of the Most High God in response. But this verse 20 is another type of blessing. It's a particular form of blessing or benediction that gives glory solely to God. And that's what we call a doxology. You've probably heard these terms. They're theological terms. You know, a lot of times in a liturgical church service, you'll have a benediction. It's a prayer of blessing. 
or we'll sing the doxology, which is a chorus that ascribes great, uh, 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 praise to God. And so the Bible, these terms come from models in the scriptures. The very last blessing of the Bible bids us consider the very first blessing of the Bible, which is a dual blessing. It's a benediction and a doxology. So I just thought it would be encouraging and uplifting to look at some of the benedictions and the doxologies of the Bible today. We did that uh, with blessings in general last week. And so when we think of benedictions, think of a blessing because. A benediction can be pronounced upon God and it can be pronounced upon men, by God or by men. There's some interesting benedictions in the Old Testament by God upon men because of something they had done, things that perhaps we should strive to model. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to be flipping in the Bible today. Keep in mind that in this study of Revelation that goes back more than 10 years, we have dived into every single book of the Bible at least twice. Can you imagine that? So we've done a complete Bible study is what we've done by God's great grace. And it's kind of bittersweet to know that we're almost finished. You guys might be glad about that. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 11. God is speaking to Solomon. Solomon has a dream in Gibeon in which the Lord appears to him and blesses him. It says, ask of me anything, and I will give it unto you. Now, we typically recap this event by saying that Solomon asked God for wisdom. That's not exactly true. And when we speak the word wisdom, we don't necessarily use it in a way that comprehends what happens here. What Solomon actually asked God to not for wealth or riches or power. He's overwhelmed by the place in which he finds himself to rule over a great many people. Something very difficult. And he says in verse 9, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart. Not wisdom of mind, but an understanding heart. To judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. What Solomon asked for was a wise heart that could know the difference between good and evil and not be deceived thereby. Wouldn't it be nice if just one judge, just one politician, just one leader in our society today would ask for that or seek that? Most of them don't even care what right and wrong is. They care what benefits them. And that's why our nation is in such a mess. But God, Solomon asked God for a wise heart and discernment. And thereby we get a blessing in verse 11, a benediction. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor has asked the life of thine enemies, but has asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart 
That's much more valuable than a wise and understanding mind, keep in mind. So that there was none like thee, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I've also given thee that which thou hast not asked, riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. God pronounces a benediction here upon Solomon because he asked for wisdom of heart and discernment to know good and evil above all earthly pleasures. And God blessed him. Does it not follow that if we seek first the kingdom of God, which is to know right and wrong, that all the things we need will be added unto us? First King or Second Kings ten thirty. God pronounces a blessing upon Jehu, a military leader in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jehu was commissioned by God to overthrow the wicked house of Ahab and to stamp it out in Israel. Sometimes the only way to overthrow evil in a nation is to kill it, to take from it its very life and breath and to stamp it out. And that's what Jehu did. He stamped out the house of Ahab and that wicked, vile woman Jezebel. And he did it with great violence the wrath and indignation of the Lord because he had been commanded to do so. Now, Jehu does overstep his bounds a little bit. But here in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, we have a blessing. The sad thing is how he responded to the blessing. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well, this is a benediction, because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, what was right in God's eyes was to kill the house of Ahab and to stamp it out. That was right in God's eyes. Now some folks have a hard time with that, but thus saith the Lord. And hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. What a blessing, a benediction pronounced upon a man who obeyed God's will and therefore his children unto the fourth generation would sit upon the throne of Israel. After that fourth son, none of those kings or usurpers that sat on the throne of the northern kingdom were legitimate. And God doesn't recognize them. The prophet Hosea won't even call them by name. God doesn't recognize usurpers, won't even mention their name. We can think about that and apply that to where we live today. But God pronounces a blessing upon Jehu because he was obedient down to the very detail. The sad part of this story is what follows this benediction. Verse 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. He did these great things for God. He stamped out idolatry from the house of Ahab and Baal worship. But he left the calves. He left the calves at Dan and Bethel. Didn't want to touch it. Didn't want to upset the apple cart or the status quo too much. Jehu was very Republican. He was very MAGA. 
He was very Trump. He was very conservative. He was very Austin Knudsen, State Attorney General, Montana. Obedient and yet not obedient. Blessed and responds to the blessing of obedience with disobedience. Let's maintain the status quo. The best we have in America today in all realms of politics is right here. We've got no better than that. This country's doomed. But we're not citizens of this country. We're citizens of heaven. Praise God. And citizens of heaven can say to their country exactly what she is and should do so. A blessing, a benediction, because thou hast done well. And God honored it. Jehu didn't keep his part, but God kept his part. And indeed, his children to the fourth generation did sit upon that throne. 2 Kings 22. These are just some examples of benedictions in the Old Testament pronounced by God upon men because of some faithfulness of men. 2 Kings 22 19 and 20. This is a benediction pronounced upon young King Josiah, the last faithful king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and accursed, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace. And thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. You see, a copy of the word of God, the book of the law of Moses, had been found in the temple. And it was presented to Josiah. And it was read to him. And what did he do? He rent his clothes. He rent his clothes. He rent his garments and put ashes upon his head in fear. We have not obeyed the Lord. We are in trouble with God. He humbled himself before the Lord. And therefore, God blesses him. Josiah died a young man going out to fight a battle he didn't need to fight. But it was a blessing. It's a blessing to die in peace and for your eyes not to have to see the evil. It's a blessing for some, like my grandfather, like Brother Terry Hall, whose eyes don't have to see the evil that's coming to us in the, in, in the coming days. It's a blessing. A man's heart was tender when he heard the law of God, when he heard the Bible. He didn't get stark raving mad and angry like Jehoiakim later does and cut the Bible up with a penknife and throw it in the fire, he humbles himself and God blesses him. A benediction because. Jeremiah 39. Some of these passages we've looked at before. Jeremiah 39. Here we have a benediction upon a relatively unknown figure, an Ethiopian eunuch who indeed is faithful a Gentile faithful in the midst of a whole bunch of rebellious Jews in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 39, 16 through 18. The prophet is told, Now go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, 
saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. That's a reference to the Babylonians. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. If you remember in the previous chapter, Jeremiah was thrown by some of the elders of the city into a miry pit because he preached God's word. The preacher was thrown into a pit, and he sunk down in the mire. And this one Gentile, this one eunuch, spoke up for him remonstrated on his behalf and went to the king and said, this is not right what you've allowed to happen. If you don't rescue him from that pit, he's going to die there. And so the king said, go and get him out. And this unit gathered some men. They took old rags, old rags from old clothes, tied them together, threw it down there, hooked them up under Jeremiah's armpits and pulled him out. So a man spoke up on behalf of a despised preacher. And had enough guts to do it before the king. And trusted the Lord and God blessed him. A benediction upon Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. Because thou hast put thy trust in me. Those are encouraging benedictions. God blesses men because they ask for wisdom to discern right from wrong. God blesses a man because he's obedient to the very detail what many would consider insignificant details. God blesses a man because his heart is tender at the hearing of God's word. And God blesses a man who trusts him when no one else does. Wow. What an incredible thing to be the recipient of a benediction from God. Jesus speaks the words of a benediction in Matthew chapter 11. Just as a benediction can be from God directed upon men, so a benediction can be from a man directed upon God. Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, pronounces a benediction upon God the Father, God in spirit. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Jesus praises God, pronounces a blessing on God because God has revealed his truth, not to the wisdom of the world, but to the common man. The Bible's written for the common man. That's why we can read and preach and understand Revelation. It's not a dark mystery reserved for the sages and the philosophers. The Bible's written for the common man. God reveals his truth to babes and the wisdom of the world perishes. Jesus pronounces a benediction upon God. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus in his humanity. He goes on to say in verse 27 that all things are delivered unto me of my Father and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then proceeding from this blessing pronounced upon God, Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor. Common people, the despised and the rejected of men, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those words proceed, those famous words about an easy burden proceed from a benediction. Jesus praising the Father for what he has done. There are a couple of interesting benedictions in Revelation that we talked about long, long ago. One of my favorite here is in what we call the salutation of the book. Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. A blessing pronounced upon the seven churches of Asia. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings unto the earth, of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What an incredible benediction from John because of what Christ has done. To Christ be glory because he is a faithful witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. He loved us and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. And if that weren't enough, he's made us kings and priests. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 3.10, we have a benedictory blessing pronounced upon remnant believers because of something they have done. The message to the church at Philadelphia, there is no condemnation in this message. The faithful church, the faithful remnant, the church that keeps God's word. And because of that, there's a special blessing. Verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The remnant body that keeps God's word when all of society denies it. All of society says men can marry men. All of society is now claiming that people can uh, be whatever gender they want to be. And that gender has nothing to do with biology. All of society is accepting the destruction and the raping of the family. But those who keep the word of God's patience, what God's word says, uh, clinging to right and wrong as understood from the dawn of time and as revealed in the scriptures, those that keep the word of God's patience, he will keep from the coming tribulation. That's a great promise. A benediction upon the faithful remnant. You've kept my word. I'm going to keep you from that hour of temptation that's coming to try the world. Remember the twofold purpose of the tribulation period. We've talked about many times to wake up the nation of Israel and to judge the Gentile kingdoms. Those that keep God's word are spared from that. Let's look at a few doxologies in the Bible. So you have benedictions which can be men 
pronounced upon God or God pronounced upon men because of certain things that they have done or because of a certain response. A doxology in the Bible gives glory to God alone. A doxology is just like the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God, praising God need not a reason. Need not a reason at all. One of the great doxologies in the Old Testament is Exodus chapter 15. Does anybody know what that's called? The Song of Moses. The Song of Moses. After Israel was delivered from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's chariot army who were drowned in the sea. Exodus chapter 15. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, a great doxology, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Amen. Later in verse 3, this is something that modern day churchianity can't cope with. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He's a man of war. And he will rage war and righteousness when he returns. And all of this evil that vexes our spirits and our souls today, be it here in North Carolina or out in Montana or all over the world, is going to be destroyed. And the blood will flow even to the horse's bridle. Amen. Amen. Now, you may not remember, but in in Revelation 15, that same doxology, the song of Moses, is sung by the tribulation saints. Revelation 15, verse 3, And they sing... Remember, John sees a sea of glass and all the martyrs who would not receive the mark and were killed for it are gathered there. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. What a great doxology. What a great summation of that chapter in Exodus. God, for his judgment, is worthy to be praised. Worthy. And then what proceeds from this doxology are the seven last plagues of God, the seventh trumpet, the seven vials of His wrath. Another great doxology is in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. You may not be aware of this, but 1 Chronicles 16 is a psalm in the Chronicles. It says here in verse 7, on that day, that was the day that David brought the ark to Jerusalem. The ark of the covenant was finally brought to Jerusalem and there was celebration. 
and it was put under a tent there. Later it would be placed in the temple that his son Solomon would build. But in response to that, David utters a song of thanksgiving. Beginning in verse 7, Then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. So this was a psalm, a model doxology given to Asaph and his brethren that would become a model and a source for many of the psalms in the psalms. Those recorded to have been written by the sons of Asaph or Asaph. Psalm 50, Psalm 73 through 83, Psalm 96, Psalm 105, they all have their source in this psalm in the book of Chronicles that David delivers on the day the ark is brought to Jerusalem. David's doxology of thanksgiving. I'm not going to read this. Verse 25 and 26, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Our God made the heavens. You'll see these same words appear later in Psalm 96. I like the end of this doxology. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, verse 36, forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. There's a short doxology in Isaiah chapter 6. We see this coming from mysterious heavenly beings called the seraphim that surround the throne of God. Isaiah the prophet says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple, and above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. The great doxology of the seraphim that shakes the post of the door of the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see his glory everywhere. And one day the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord under the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 4, 8, the cherubim, the beast full of eyes, repeat this same doxology that Isaiah heard from the seraphim. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Amen. That old hymn, number one in some Baptist hymnals, Holy, 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 is based upon this doxology right here in Revelation 4, which in turn is based upon what Isaiah hears in Isaiah chapter 6. There's a doxology at the end of Habakkuk the prophet. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk or Habakkuk in Hebrew. 
Habakkuk has shown the judgment of God coming upon the people of Israel because of their rebellion. Judgment at the hand of the Babylonians. And Habakkuk doesn't understand why God would allow an evil nation to punish his covenant people. I received a um, copy of a church bulletin from Living Word Baptist Church recently, and there was a card in there from one of the ladies in the church. She had written a sweet card, but she had included the bulletin and the devotion that was in it, and she wanted to underline, she underlined a few sentences to encourage us because she knows what we're facing and what we're dealing with in Montana. And this devotion was about the prophet Habakkuk and his struggle here. And this is what she underlines with a little smiley face. But God reminds Habakkuk or Habakkuk that when the evil attack the godly, they are storing up punishment for themselves. Amen. That was a great encouragement to me when I received it from this kind woman from my sending church to remind me that the evil in Montana that attacks the servants of God and falsely accuses them is storing up damnation and judgment for themselves. And I look forward to the day when that judgment falls upon them if they will not repent. I'd rather them repent. I'd rather them repent. I'd rather see from the vilest of evil out there exactly what the early Christians saw with Paul the Apostle. Breathing out threatenings. Standing there watching them stone Stephen with a smirk on his face. Going about to terrorize Christians and punish them and falsely accuse them. And then suddenly he's confronted on the road to Damascus. Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And then Saul goes and is baptized and then he's immediately out there preaching. Oh, wouldn't that be a joy to see? But here at the end, the prophet, struggling with these things and hearing a rebuke from God, comes to a place of peace. And he utters what I consider to be a doxology of praise, irrespective of what his circumstances might be. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, verse 17, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the field or from the fold and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Those days would come upon Judah after Babylon carried them off captive. All of that stuff would happen whether Habakkuk was alive or not. Yet, the prophet says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places. God is my strength, regardless of what happens. A doxology of faith and trust in the Lord God. There's a famous doxology in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. It's got a name that comes from a Latin word that means to magnify. The magnificat. Who spoke the Magnificat? Mary. After she heard, after Elizabeth said that, hey, the babe in my womb, as soon as he saw you, leapt. 
The first person to recognize that Jesus Christ was the Messiah was an unborn baby, an unborn child. And yet we slaughter these in our society. We don't consider them to be anything but masses of cells. And yet John the Baptist leapt in the womb and acknowledged the Messiahship of Jesus before he had even been born. That is wicked as hell. Josiah and I have been watching some documentaries in color on World War II. And it's interesting to watch these and to think about these and to revisit that period in history in the time in which we're living now. One thing I can't stand about historical documentaries, and it drives me insane, is to listen to the people speaking as if they know exactly what people of different time periods were thinking exactly what they're doing and sitting there in their air-conditioned offices and passing judgment as if they know every little thing about what transpired. As if evil and good is clear when it's not. That's the epitome of arrogance. The epitome of arrogance judges history. The epitome of humility or the model of humility would seek to learn from it. And we Americans are so arrogant, we all are, We've been that way for quite some time in this country. We think that what we do is good. If we fight in a war, we're the good guys. And we justify all sorts of things. We justify the bombing of Dresden, Germany on February 13, 1945, where more than 25,000 civilians were killed. Some of them literally melted in the streets because of the incendiary bombs. We justify that. Civilians, simply because we say the Nazis were evil. You think God does that? You think God says it's okay to massacre civilians and cause them to melt in the streets simply because you're America? That was a terrorist attack upon a German city perpetrated by our government and the British government. You think God's forgotten that? There were terrorist attacks perpetrated upon the Jews in the Ukraine by Ukrainian citizens. In fact, some have argued that the the Nazi Einsatzgruppen's in the Ukraine were even worse than the concentration camps in Poland. You think God's forgotten that? You think God's forgotten that Ukrainian citizens cheered the dragging of Jewish people out of their villages and their mass execution and throwing women and children into mass graves? You think God's forgotten that? Maybe we could better understand what's happening today by looking at history with an honest eye. There was wickedness on all sides of that. War is hell. War is God's judgment against sin here on earth. And we like to talk about how evil Hitler and the Nazis were, and they were indeed. But we speak of them as if they alone were the epitome of evil, and none of us could ever even comprehend thinking of such things. That's amazing to me. You know, at least Hitler and the Nazis, even the highest SS guards and officers, acknowledged that the family was the bedrock of society. They acknowledged that a healthy relationship between a husband and wife that raises up German children is a good thing. And they wouldn't dare slaughter their unborn babies. Okay, fine, it's wicked as hell. People from all eternity 
in, in human history, from all human history, not eternity, have destroyed and massacred and killed people unlike them. That's been going on since Cain and Abel. But it's an especially evil thing to kill your own people, to commit civilizational suicide. Who are we to judge the Nazis when we do what we do to our unborn children? When parents in this country castrate their children and fill them for a hor- full of hormones, some young child that can't even know hardly his right from his left to try to, to, try to uh, uh, perpetrate transgenderism. Who are we to judge the Nazis? What a wicked world we live in. What a wicked world. I don't mean to get off on a subject, but the first to acknowledge Jesus' Messiahship was an unborn baby. And we slaughter unborn babies and say it can't even be human. That's Nazi level, if not worse. But I've enjoyed watching these documentaries because, you know, history isn't as the books write that. Write it. Did you know that... Uh, you know, we talk about the Nazis, but did you know that uh, good old Winston Churchill consigned the Holy Land to the Muslims in the 1920s because he was, a, he was scared to death to take a stand. He gave the Transjordan, which belongs to Israel, over to the Muslims and is responsible for all the death and bloodshed that's happened. And good old Winston Churchill, wicked as hell when it came to Jews having a homeland in the land that was given to them by God. Wicked. We don't want to talk about it, though. What about the United States? What about those Jews who fled Germany on a ship and came to the port here in New York and good old Roosevelt said, nope, you can't come in here and send them back. And almost all those people ended up dead in concentration camps. That's wicked as hell. You think God's forgotten that? No. This country has run up a bill with God. Run up a bill with God. God's got a plan and purposes, and the machinations of men often further His plans and purposes. I heard something said once, I think it's amazing. World War I prepared the land for the Jew. World War II prepared the Jew for the land. That's an interesting thought. It's not all about us. And there's a lot of evil out there. What we need is a wise and understanding heart like Solomon to be able to see it and quit making excuses for our country just because we were born here and just because we think we can do no wrong. America's not always the good guy, and it hadn't been for a long time. America wasn't the good guy when old Abraham Lincoln said, let's get some troops and let's go down and invade our southern states. That's not the good guy. It's not the good guy. America wasn't a good guy when it blockaded southern ports and wouldn't allow goods to come in and people starved. America wasn't a good guy when Yankee soldiers raped children and burned homes and created a swath of destruction from Atlanta to the coast. That's not the good guy. Anyway, that all comes from the fact that the first to recognize Jesus as Messiah was an unborn baby. Our attitude about unborn children in this country makes us worse than the Nazis, in my opinion. In my opinion. But anyway, the great doxology. Let's turn to more positive things. Luke chapter 1, Mary, in response to this salutation and the response of an unborn baby says, verse 46, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced 
in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Amen. Holy is his name. You know, the angel back in chapter 1 verse 28 told Mary, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. You know, the Catholics like to harp on that and they lift Mary up as if she's some perpetual virgin and she's holy and sinless like Jesus. Even though, even though Mary says, I, I rejoice in God my Savior. A sinless person doesn't need a Savior. But we're told that Mary was blessed among women. Did you know that there's somebody in the Scripture, a woman in the Scripture that received a higher honor than that? There's a woman in the scripture that was told she was blessed above women. Mary was blessed among women. Who was it that was blessed above women? Does anybody know? No. She took a tent peg and she nailed it through a wicked man's temple and pinned his head to the ground. Jael. I've known some Israeli uh, girls named Jael. But in, in the song of Deborah... She speaks of Jael being blessed among women because she was used of the Lord to overthrow that wicked military commander who had persecuted Israel. So that's just a little bit of Bible trivia there. Luke 2.14, there's a great doxology. We sing it at Christmas time. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I love how some of the modern Bibles can't get their hands off this. They got to mess with it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men of goodwill. Where in the world are you going to find men of goodwill on this world that haven't been touched by the Spirit of God? What a stupid thing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men. That doxology of the angels. The heavenly host to the shepherds. Now Paul is known several times in his epistles of just breaking off into a doxology as a response to something he's been writing about. Turn to Romans 11. There's two doxologies in Romans. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. This is Paul's response of praise to God as a result of his future plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. So here God is, uh, Paul has written, as concerning the gospel, verse 28, they, the Jew, are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. All throughout history, Jews have been enemies of the gospel, but they're beloved because of the Father's plan and purpose. There's coming a time, Paul talks about in verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. Those living at that time when they wake up and call upon their Messiah. But as a result of these things, and Paul's discussion of these things, of God's plan and purpose for Israel, in Romans chapter 9 through 11, he breaks out in the doxology, starting in verse 33, all the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. 
For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. God's plan and purpose for the Jew ought to cause us to break out into praise and extol before God. But Paul isn't done there. Go to the end of the book. Romans 16, Paul breaks out into a doxology in response to the great mystery of the church. God's plan and purpose for that peculiar called out assembly. Jews and Gentiles together. Verses 25 through 27. Now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but is now made manifest, the mystery of the church and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. If you go back one verse to verse 24, I made a mistake last week. Romans 16, 24, the exact wording in, he, in, in Greek and English of the, last verse, of the last verse of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. There's Revelation 22, 21 right there in Romans 16, 24. Now last week, I mentioned how Revelation 22, 21 appears exactly in two other places. And in an additional two places, almost exactly. And so basically four times the same verse is repeated. I was wrong, there's five times. Romans 16, 24, I forgot about that. The reason I forgot about it is because that uh, benedictory blessing is not at the very end of the book. Did you know that the modern, some of the modern versions of Scripture completely cut out Romans 16, 24? It's missing. It's missing. Unbelievable. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Paul pronounces a doxology born out of prayer for his converts. In prayer for his converts, he breaks out into praise. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Doxology born out of prayer for his converts. 1 Timothy 1.17, a doxology born out of reflecting upon his own salvation and upon God's great grace to him who persecuted the church of Christ. 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul breaks out into a doxology. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How often do we reflect upon our salvation and break out into a doxology? How often do we break out in a doxology as we pray for others? How often do we break out into praise when we think about God's great plan and purpose, 
not just for Israel, but for the church and his control over all things. Paul's very final benediction or doxology can be found in Hebrews chapter 13. Yes, I believe Paul wrote the uh, epistle of Hebrews. But that's a side point. I've talked about that in here. But Paul's last doxology is at the end of Hebrews. Verse 20, verses 20 and 21, chapter 13. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Appears multiple times in the scriptures. Amen. In Revelation, there are at least five doxologies. Revelation 4.11, you remember I, I preached way back when we were in chapter 4 that I believe this to be the most important verse in the Bible. And it is a doxology. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. My friends, that's foundational truth. That's foundational truth from which all things proceed. All things. The redemption of men, the Messiah, Israel, the church, that all comes from that foundation of truth that God made all things and He made them for His pleasure. Amen. Revelation 5, the response of heaven to the Lamb that was slain, who alone was worthy to open the scroll. The great response of heaven, the church gathered there and they sung a new song, verse 9, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. That's the church right there in heaven in Revelation 5 before the first seal is open. Hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And has made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And then it goes down to say in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 11, we have a doxology. Great voices in heaven at the outpouring of the seven vials of God's wrath. A doxology in response to his justice and wrath. Verse 15 of chapter 11, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, of His Messiah, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats, representatives of the church, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, 
because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Amen. And then we have one last doxology in Revelation chapter 19. A great voice of much people in heaven at the fall of Babylon, at the fall of the great whore, at the fall of the world system of which this nation today is most certainly a face. At her fall, we have a great doxology. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. Alleluia is the Greek spelling of hallelujah in Hebrew. Alleluia is Greek. Hallelujah is Hebrew. Alleluia. Praise you the Lord. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. There's coming a day when there will be a great doxology of praise in heaven when this world system falls. The system is so corrupt, but it will fall. And there will be rejoicing. And we ourselves can lift up that doxology in the presence of those saints. There's one last doxology in the New Testament that's my personal favorite. In fact, I believe it's a great ending to any street corner sermon. Whatever topic you're preaching on a street corner, on a college campus, this is a great way to end it. And I've found myself doing this many times. Turn back to the book before Revelation... Jude, Jude has one chapter. So we don't say Jude 1 verse whatever. We say Jude, we're going to go to verses 24 and 25. What books in the Bible only have one chapter? You got Jude, 2 John, 3 John, Philemon, one in the Old Testament. But Obadiah. So those don't have chapters. So we technically you'd say let's turn to Jude 24 and 25. And so this is one of my personal favorite doxologies. And when I'm done preaching, this is what I like to say right out there in public, with or without a microphone. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. So any of you street preachers out there, that's a good one to memorize. It's a good ending to a street corner sermon. So we've seen blessings in the scripture. Remember, blessings can be pronounced by God upon men, by men upon God, or by men upon men. Benedictions are pronounced because of something. They can be pronounced by God upon men or men upon God because of something. A doxology is pronounced by men or created beings upon God alone. There's a fourth type of blessing that uh, uh, is associated with a word we've heard before. It's called a beatitude. A beatitude is from the Latin beatitudo, which means a state of blessedness. It's related to the word blessing in Latin. And a beatitude is a blessing pronounced by Jesus, Jesus himself, upon men. And so beatitudes are typically limited 
to the Sermon on the Mount, and we speak of the nine Beatitudes. Of course, there's nine Beatitudes, and there's nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I find that interesting. But a Beatitude is a declaration of blessedness made by Jesus the Savior upon men of particular virtues or those that portray a certain virtue for which there is no praise or blessing from men, but there is a blessing from Jesus. Blessed are ye. Blessed are those. Blessed are they. The Beatitudes. That's a special blessing from Jesus upon those who exhibit virtue that's unacknowledged or unrecognized by the world. My favorite beatitude is found in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we make a mistake when we associate persecution solely with the preaching of the gospel. We've got this idea today that you can't be persecuted unless you're preaching the gospel or witnessing the gospel. That's not, that's Christian persecution. Anything else is not. Well, that's not true. According to this beatitude, if you are persecuted for righteousness sake, now it's righteous to preach the gospel, but it's also righteous to love your wife and children. It's righteous to raise up a family. It's righteous to call sin, sin. It's righteous to pay your debts. It's righteous to be honest. It's righteous to gather as saints on the Lord's day. If we are persecuted for any of these things, Jesus says, blessed are you. It's a righteous thing to mind your own business and to not start trouble with people for whom you have no reason. That's righteous. It's a righteous thing to walk down a highway and carry a cross and encourage people to humble themselves and get right with the Lord. So if you're persecuted or you're targeted because of such things, Jesus said, blessed are you. Paul says, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, per- be, shall suffer persecution. So don't make the mistake of thinking that, just be- that you have to be preaching on a street corner or witnessing to somebody to be persecuted. It's not true. If you're a believer and you do what's right and you are mocked or scorned or you suffer for it, Jesus said, blessed are you. You're a, you are the, the, the partaker of Christian persecution. And we can rejoice in those things. All of this brings me back, and I'm going to wrap it up, to the first blessing of the Bible. We were brought there by the last blessing of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The Bible's first blessing, which is a benediction and a doxology, it's worth looking beyond that a little bit because there's a response or there's something that immediately follows this first blessing. Something that immediately follows Abram's encounter with Melchizedek. We have that first blessing in verses 19 and 20. And then go over to chapter 15 verse 1. After these things, after Abram's encounter with Melchizedek and the Bible's first blessing, a benediction and a doxology, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. What's the first thing God told him after that blessing? 
Fear not. Abram, I am thy shield and thy exciting great reward. Now Spurgeon preached a sermon in his church on Revelation 1.17 from the very first chapter of Revelation. And I'll just read that verse real quick. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is John's response to seeing the glorified Christ. And he laid his hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And I found it interesting that Spurgeon himself, in preaching in Revelation, went back to this same blessing in Genesis 14. And he had a word to say about it that I thought would be uh, worth uh, looking at. Now, you know, I had it marked with this bulletin. And then I pulled the bulletin out earlier, and now uh, I don't know where it was. Let me, okay, this would be four, four, three, okay. Listen to what Spurgeon says here. Fear not, this was a sermon called Fear Not on Revelation 1.17. Fear not is a plant which grows very plentifully in God's garden. If you look through the lily beds of Scripture, you will continually find by the side of other flowers the sweet fear knots. He had such a way with words. Peering out from among doctrines and precepts, even as violets look up from their hiding places of green leaves. Fear knots bloomed in the old time at the feet of Abram when he returned from fighting with the kings. Melchizedek blessed him and the Lord comforted him. The patriarch might have been half afraid that he would always lead a troubled life now that he had once drawn the sword. But the Lord came to him in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. If he had to undergo a soldier's toils, he should have a soldier's shield and a soldier's pay. And both should be exceeding great, for he should find them both in God. After you have been fighting battles for Christ... You may feel weary and worried, and then your great Melchizedek will refresh you with bread and wine and whisper in your ear, fear not. Fear not was the next thing God said to Abraham after this blessing. So let us do with the Bible's last blessing, the last verse of the Bible, let's do with it Let's reflect back, let's, let's take it, let's reflect back on this first blessing and let us fear not. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Therefore, fear not. Jesus Christ, God is our shield in our exceeding great reward. Why should we fear not? And I'll close with this. This is a precious little passage in Luke 12 that kind of gets overlooked sometimes. Jesus says to his disciples in, in very diminutive terms, just terms of endearment, personal terms. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Fear not. Why should we not fear? Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And isn't that revelation in a nutshell? Fear not, little flock. Jesus tells John in chapter 1, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
And all of that prophecy, all of the judgment, all of the culmination of all things ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If we wanted to sum up Revelation in one verse, would it not be here? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not just His duty. It's not just His promise. It is His pleasure to give us the kingdom to rule and reign with Christ. How should we respond to this last blessing, this common closing of Paul's epistles used here by John because he had access to him? How should we respond? Simple. Fear not. It's our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom because Jesus Christ has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The last blessing of the Bible. One more message. We're not done. There's one last in the Bible. It's the Bible's last amen. There's some interesting truths about the word amen, where it's found in Scripture, where it's not found in Scripture. There are a few times when it's not actually translated amen, and there's a reason for that. And the first time you see amen in the Scriptures... It's very interesting. Amen is a glorious word, but it is a dangerous word. It's a bear trap. And when you say it, you better not say it flippantly because that bear trap will snap shut if you don't believe what you speak. And so that will provide a nice little conclusion to this book. I'm kind of dragging it out because it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. But all good things must come to an end except the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this last blessing in the Bible, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that is upon all that have come to Him, come to you in faith and repentance, believing upon Christ, His shed blood, His atonement, His substitutionary propitiatory sacrifice on the cross for our sins and His resurrection from the dead. Lord, we're thankful for all the blessings of the Bible, the benedictions and doxologies which turn our attention to you and to the things for which you are worthy and deserving of our praise. And Lord, I just rejoice that we've been able to do that this morning. Father, I um, um, pray that you bless the food we're about to eat and our fellowship for these things are a praise and a glory to you. We're thankful, Lord, that it is your good pleasure to give unto your flock the kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to what you said to Abram, to what Jesus said to John, and Jesus, what you said to your disciples, fear not, as we continue to live and shine as lights in this present evil world. So, Lord, we conclude, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, ye all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, amen.